Let's uh, take our Bibles, if you would, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have Sunday school little ones, you'd like them to be in Sunday school, even up through grade 6, they can be there, or you can keep them with you. Either one is perfectly fine. We're in our continued study. If you've been with us, God's plan for a healthy church. Study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We have come to the end of Second Corinthians. We're in chapter 13 and moving our way towards the end and completion of this study. Taking us a few years to get through it, and I hope it's been a blessing to you and an encouragement and, and a model and an example of how to walk and how the ministry is to go. In particular, over the last, just this last two chapters, marks of ministry, Paul's example, have been our focus. It still continues to be our focus. I want you to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 13. We're going to read that together. We'll be read all the way down to verse 10. I'm going to be reading to you from the New American Standard, and if you read that, you can pick up a Bible around you, or if you just read and follow along in the copy of God's Word that you study each day, and I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together, and your, your uh, reading will be enriched. Verse 1 says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 2. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all who of the rest as well, that if I come again, I'll not spare anyone. Verse 3. Since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you, verse 4, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless, indeed, you fail the test. Verse 6, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Verse 7, now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Verse 8, for we could do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Verse 9, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also Pray for that you be made complete. Verse 10. For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Let's stop right there. A not well-liked calculus teacher at Ohio State quite a few years ago had administered the final to about 1,000 students. And this was before digital tests became common, so this professor was one of those guys who would stand at the front of the class and yell out how much time was remaining before the end of the test, a real charmer. While doing this, he also walked around the room making sure no one was cheating. So he'd have the students stack the completed tests on a huge podium at the front of the room, and this made for quite a mess because of the large number of students. During this particular final, one guy entered the test needing a decent grade to pass the class. His only problem was with calculus, he did poorly when he was rushed. And the guy walking around the room barking out how much time was left before the test had to be handed in didn't help him at all. He figured he wanted to assure himself of a good grade, so he hardly flinched when the professor said, pencils down and submit your Scantron sheets and work to piles at the front of the, of the room. Five minutes turned to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 40. Almost an hour after the test was officially over, our friend finally put down his pencil, gathered up his work, and headed to the front of the hall to submit his final. At the time, 
the professor is sitting there at the front of the room, strangely, waiting for the student to complete his exam. As he walked up, the professor asked, what do you think you're doing? As the student walked up, he put his exam down on one of the now neatly stacked piles of tests, and the professor had had plenty of time while he was waiting to organize those piles. It was clear he'd only waited to give the student a hard time. I'm turning in my exam, the student said hesitatingly. I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you, the professor gloated. Your exam is an hour late. You failed it. Consequently, I'll see you next semester with you to repeat the course. The student smiled slyly and um, asked the professor, do you know who I am? What? The professor asked, annoyed that the student showed no sign of being intimidated. The student rephrased the question, do you know what my name is? No, of course not, smiled the professor. The student looked at the professor dead in the eyes and said slowly, I didn't think so. He lifted up one of the stacks halfway, put his test neatly into the center of the stack, let the stack slide over during his test in the middle, turned around, walked casually out of the huge lecture hall. It's a funny and true story. You can look it up. And we've all known teachers like this who seem more concerned with the power trip and appear to secretly enjoy it when a student has a hard time or fails. But as we just read in our new section, Paul calls the Corinthians to take a test, doesn't he? And that's a test that is a very serious one and one that someday they won't be able to retake. And the test giver knows everyone's name. And the outcome determines not a grade but the location of eternity. So Paul's concerned that they pass. And he doesn't want them to fail. And so he's making every effort he can make and done everything within his power to help them know how to do just that. Now last week we finished chapter 12, and we really just got our feet wet, if you will, in the verse three verses of chapter 13 that you just read. Paul's going to visit the church again. We know this. It's coming up. Uh, there's a cloud hanging over him, if you will, as he begins to think about that visit, and it's imminent. We saw Paul dreads being brought low. We saw that he is mourning over those who are living in unrepentant sin, and they have continued to strike blows at the unity of the church. They've struck blows at the purity of the church and against the truth that they've heard. And it's not that he was looking for perfection. He wasn't. We, he doesn't have it, neither does anyone else, because we're still in this unredeemed flesh. It's just that he wanted them to move more and more toward the perfection of Christ. But he understood, and we understand, that there's going to be sin in everybody's life. And so we saw in all of that that the Lord expects repentance. And that breaks the pattern of shame and sadness that comes into the heart of the minister as he ministers to a church that continues to choose the pattern of sin. And it also breaks the pattern of sin and bondage and captivity in the life of the believer. We expect to have to deal with sin in our own lives, of course, and the sin in the lives of the people. We just enjoy and rejoice when there's repentance. And we saw that that was example number 10 at the very heart of Paul. A faithful minister teaches intentionally to have as one of the expected results of teaching and admonishing and correcting and instructing repentance. And, and we saw that a faithful teacher teaches the word uh, to accomplish that very thing, and that was a very important example exemplified by Paul, and we looked at that extensively. And, and to shore that up, we also looked at a sampling of the church age from Revelation 2 and 3. We won't go through that again. But that's where Jesus takes a look at the church. He says, I know your works, I know your deeds. And then at the end, as he explains what's going on in the church and what needs to happen, he said, repent. And Paul says, if I come, you're going to have, if you have continued sin in your life and you're unrepentant, he says, I'll be humbled, I'll be sorrowful because you're still in sin, 
and you can just see how invested he is in the right kinds of things. The faithful pastor is concerned for the sanctification of the church, for the building up of the church, and that starts with being concerned for the repentance of the people. And when sin is successful in taking you captive, and we end with this, uh, through the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, you will repent if you understand Scripture clearly. And in the grace of God, you'll be washed clean, and you'll get up, and you continue on that path of sanctification. And that is the pattern the Lord has determined for his church to walk in holiness. Because the hope of the church and the impact of the church is all connected to the purity of the church. Holiness is the issue. And as we look back at our passage for today that we barely touched on last time, Paul is now at the point where he's having this pre-conversation with some he knows perhaps still remain in an unrepentant state. And he says, if, if this is the case, when I arrive, I won't be what you wish. And then he says, uh, back, look back, at, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. You need to look down there. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, he says this. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Let's stop right there. And we saw last time that that is, uh, that's an 11th example from Paul of a faithful minister. A faithful minister must be willing to confront sin with discipline. And we see this all the way through the scripture. It's not an unusual thing. It perhaps is unusual to you. And we'll spend some time here to get a feel for it and stand on a firm foundation. Look at verse 1. Uh, back to verse 1. Let's really dig in. Paul says this in verse 1, the very first part of the, of, the, of the verse. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Paul's expected visit's been mentioned in chapter 12, verse 14, and chapter 12, verse 20, and verse 21, and here he refers to it yet again, and he's almost on the way, so it's the time is at hand. And he did claim before, if you remember, in 2 Corinthians 2, 1, he didn't want to ever go back and return to the church in grief. In fact, he said that in 2 Corinthians 2, 1. He said, I'm determined for my own sake, after that disastrous visit in the second time he was there, and that they didn't repent and treated him harshly, and he left there very depressed, he said, I would not come to you in sorrow again, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? What's he mean? Well, when he wrote that, it's just as far as I'm concerned, he says, for my own peace of mind, I hope I don't have to come again and have a repeat of the last time I was there. That's his preference, and that'd be any minister's preference. But as we've noted, he remains aware that a collective heartache might well be the outcome of the third trip. That's why he's having this conversation. But regardless of the consequences, He's not going to flinch from the, this exercise of correction if it's needed. And so he's determined to go through with it. He's trying to, to preempt it with some words and some in the letter to help people realize what they need to do. But he's been about that for a long time now, so now he's going to come and visit, and he's going to set things straight. And if he doesn't come and set things straight, which we'll see in just a minute, um, the church is going to be harmed. A church that continues in sin is harmed. And better that they should be wounded in spirit if this is going to bring them back to the Lord. So... There's this implied qualification, you know, severity, and if it has to be, then uh, if I come and be severe, it's not going to be a case of self-vindication. So Paul's not going to come and just defend himself and score points on his detractors. That's not his point. He's not there to argue with people who don't like him. He's not trying to prove his superiority. A and on his side, there's never been any animosity. There's ne never been any rivalry from his point of view. There has from the church towards him and certainly from false apostles. But the reality is, when he comes there, uh, his actions, whatever they will be, are going to reflect the mind of Christ. That's his, that's his issue. And he desires the church to subject itself to the truth. And so that's what Paul wants to do. 
I think it's important that we realize he's not going to come and have more arguments with people who don't like him. And as he indicated in verse 3, if he comes and he has to do what he dreads to do, he'll have the strength of the Lord then to accomplish it. That's going to be the whole issue. So back to verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. And then he says this. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's an important phrase. We're going to see that uh, a number of places. And I think it will help to understand what's going on here. So here's the thing. Paul isn't, is indicating that he isn't going to come and be a moral detective. He's not going to come with a magnifying glass and examine everybody's life and try to figure out what's going on. It appears from his comment that he believes that it's likely that the sin that is harming the unity of the church or the sins that are harming the unity or the purity of the church will be well documented by the time he gets there. In other words, there's going to be at least two and probably more who've watched or experienced them happening in the church. And those folks will be well known. And that is typically how it works when there is open sin from one of those lists that more than, if it goes on for any length of time, more than one person has experienced it. So God gives plenty of time for them to repent, and he always does that for his long-suffering. But if they won't, he usually makes the sin issue known a little bit more widely so that it's well established. It appears that Paul is uh, not asking the Corinthians to tell tales. If you remember, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, he had a report early on. We talked about this at, at length. We won't do it today, but it gives you the idea of what's going on here. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of the such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. And we explained that whole thing. It's not that his direct mother, it's probably a second marriage and, and the son has had a relationship with her. Verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that they're the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, Paul has had a report of the church, and we saw that when we read that, it was probably from Chloe, from chapter 1, verse 11, of this terrible issue. She visited and probably let him know what was going on there. And, and note, with this unrepentant and this openly sinful thing going on, and people know about it, here's the question. What should this thing in the church have caused? What did he say just there? He said, um, you have become arrogant, and if not, what? What should have been the response? What's it say? mourned you haven't mourned that's precisely the words paul used about the church when he said if i come and you're still in unrepentant sin i'm going to be brought low i'm going to be mourning see and that's what he expected the church to do if the church is healthy it understands how this works that's paul's dread when he comes he's going to come to the church and, and there's going to be some who will bring him low and also he'll be humiliated after all the teaching that he did then he comes and they're still in open sinfulness it's humiliating. So what should have happened in the church when this unrepentant sin became known? Correcting, reproving, or if they wouldn't respond, we'll see later, removing. Mark this. The main thing was what? The church was supposed to act on it. When we look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, remember last week. Someone's in sin, those who are spiritual, correct them. Right? This is part of the church activity that goes on. As part of the health of the church. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians. He said, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So the idea is there, you see someone in a pattern of sinfulness that's unrepentant. You go to them and you 
restore such a one. So in other words, you have to point out the sinfulness. They have to respond in a spiritual manner, of course, and you do that in the spirit of gentleness, and you don't do it with haughtiness because, of course, you want to make sure you don't get caught up in the same things that they've been doing, and you don't do the same things that they are doing. So very common that the church is supposed to take care of these issues. Now look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or 7. Paul just says, this is just so obvious, right? He says, he says you should have mourned, and the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. And then verse 7 says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. What's the issue? Uh, Paul's coming this third time. He will have expected flagrant sin that's going to have to be dealt with and should have been dealt with by the church. So in view of the apostles' expected visit, it's likely that there's unresolved cases. There was unresolved cases there in verse 5, or chapter 5 of chapter one of uh, 1 Corinthians. And there's going to be some unresolved cases. They're going to be brought to him by those who are spiritual. And yet, even now, in the letter in his writing, see, he's speaking to those who continue sinning along the lines of those lists, and they still have time to repent. It's still time to get their, themselves right before he comes. The church should have taken care of this. He certainly gave instruction that the church should do it to one another and bear one another's burdens and correct each other in a trespass. And now, as you see, if you look at, at the last part of verse 1, it says every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, you probably see, as you see on the screen, that's probably all in capitals. If you remember, as we looked at this before, the reason why that's all in capitals is because it is a quote from some other place in the Bible. In particular, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 19.15. And Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So the idea precisely is connected to the, uh, the understanding that someone might be in a sinful position, and you can go and correct them, but in order to accuse them openly about it, there has to be more people who've un experienced it. This is precisely the issue that Paul expects when he gets to the church, that all this will be firmly established. And the principle behind Deuteronomy 19.15 concerning the necessity for two or three witnesses was incorporated by Jesus in his program for the church in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. In fact, he says the same thing. As Jesus is talking to the disciples, as the church is very, very young and very get, just getting going, and he's talking about that interpersonal relationship that's going to be going on inside the church and some of the hard things that's going to happen, here's what he says. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Now, we've looked at this, and we'll look at it more extensively in, in the future. But here's the thing. We're not talking about a personal preference. We're not something, talking about something that you don't like that they're doing. What we're talking about is chapter and verse, okay? Someone is disobeying chapter and verse from the Bible, flagrantly, unrepentantly, doing something the Bible says not to do or not doing something the Bible says to do, okay? So if your brother sins, go to sh and show him his fault in private. Not go and tell somebody else about it and then go tell him, okay? Not have a conversation with someone and then sure you go tell him but, but you've you've told a few other people as well you go to him and you tell him his fault in private and if he listens to you you've won your brother that's precisely what galatians chapter 6 verse 1 just got through saying that we should do and verse 16 says but if he does not listen to you take take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed now are these people who found out by you no because what would that be if you go to somebody and you talk to somebody about someone else and you have a conversation about what you think is going on in their life, what's that called? Gossip. So it can't be that, right? So it has to be what we just got through saying that Paul was expecting as he gets to Corinth, that the sin pattern, which the Lord gives plenty of time to repent from, 
is so well established that are, there are more people who obser have observed it. So it's well documented. It's not just one person. And so I think you can see where Paul is headed with this. It's the exact same wording, both based in the law. Jesus makes the application first as he talks to the church, and then Paul follows along. And the church would be familiar with both the teaching of Deuteronomy and the teaching of Jesus. So when Paul says this, this is not, these are not new words to Paul's ears. And, and the word or the fact to be established would probably be then the accusation of continued unrepentant sinfulness from either of those lists that Paul gave to them. That would be the context. A continued pattern of gossip, continued pattern of slander, continued pattern of impurity, whatever it is, plenty of time to repent. Paul even gives them another opportunity to repent, and they haven't, so they come, but more people have experienced it because the Lord does that. He reveals that in the church so that the church can know and deal with it accordingly. Now, look back, look at verses 2 and 3, if you would. Paul says, I have previously said that when present the second time, and though now absent, I say, in advance to those who've sinned in the past and to all the rest. So he had this conversation with them while he was there. Did they receive it well? Not according to what we understand from the word of God. They received it very poorly. And you can probably expect that when you go to someone who's in open sin and unrepentant sin, that they'll justify themselves and have a conversation with you and accuse you and, and criticize you and, and uh, ad hominem arguments towards you and all of that kind of thing. So Paul, that's what happened in, in the second visit with Paul. He said, this is what I said the second time, and, and I'll say in advance before I come again, who those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I'll not spare anyone since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who's not weak towards you but mighty in you. So what's Paul's plan? It ha apparently has a lot to do with what Jesus told the church to do. It has a lot to do with what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he's dealt with uh, out, outward, unrepentant, uh, flagrant sin in the church that church is not dealing with. Now, he's going to move through church discipline. And as we said last time, though, most people would assume if you want to ruin the church, do that. Most people would assume that. Just start poking around in everybody's life and they'll leave. And my response would be, well, the people who love righteousness won't leave. The people who hate sin won't leave. The people who want to honor God, they won't leave. The people who understand what the word of God says, what it means by what it says and how that applies to the church, they're not going to leave. The people who care about obedience, they won't leave. The people who care about the testimony of the church, they're not going to leave. See, And that's the church, isn't it? Uh, didn't I just name people who are the real church? See, a lot of people come and attend, but not everybody's really the church. Some people are unredeemed. But those kind of folks are the true redeemed church. But that's, this is not normally considered a principle of church growth. If you walk, have to walk through this in some difficult time, most people would say that's the way you ruin the church. And that's not surprising because what we have today is a large majority of church leaders and a large percentage of church members who've never experienced church discipline. And they have no idea what it is, what it looks like, how it's supposed to work, or even if we should do it. That's what we have. They know very little about it. And, and the sad part is that they have certainly, marked this, experienced open, unrepentant sinfulness in the church body. That's not even a question. They don't know anything about church discipline. They never experienced it. They don't know how it should be done and not even sure it should be done. But they certainly experienced open, unrepentant sinfulness from either of those two lists, and those lists weren't exhaustive. 
in the church. They've certainly experienced that. They've just ne never experienced what should have happened inside the body. And we saw last week at our look in the church age represented by the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, the, church of the, uh, the Lord of the church is concerned about the purity of the church. I, I don't think you can read any of the comments towards those seven churches which represent the church age and not come away with the fact that the Lord of the church expects the church to be pure. He's concerned about the repentance in the church. He's, sin is the issue to the Lord of the church, and it should be the issue for us. And, and the fact that, the church, that church discipline is, for the most part, missing in the modern church conveys the message, then, that we're not really concerned about the purity of the church, and we're not concerned about sinlessness in the church. See, Not sinless perfection, but a repentance and a heart that seeks to know and follow after God. We're less concerned about that than we are about a whole lot of other things. And the strife and the jealousy and the angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbances and impurity and immorality and sensuality are all in the church. And many, many churches see it in their body but do nothing about it. Jesus is concerned about it. And the Apostle Paul was concerned about it. And then the faithful minister must be concerned about it. And Jesus gave a lot of instructions to the church. And one of the very first sermons he gave to the church was from Luke chapter 17, verse 1. I want you to hear this, and I think this provides a very firm foundation for us to stand on as we think about the church in light of heaven's perspective, not man's perspective. Luke 17, 1, speaking to his disciples again, he's talking about the church, he's talking about the relationships that will be there, and he says, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, so difficulties are going to come in the church, Sinfulness is going to come. People are going to be tripped up. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's shocking, isn't it? If you understand the context of that statement, then leading someone else into sin by your own sinfulness, which is what happens when you allow unrepentant sinfulness to continue unabated in the church, from the Lord's perspective, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. It would be better for the person to discontinue living. That's the Lord's perspective. These Jesus' words, if you're creating a stumbling block in the church by your own unrepentant sinfulness, it would be better for you to not go on living than for you to do that. See, people haven't heard any of these. these are, this is Jesus talking about the church. And he's the Lord of the church. And I think as we look at at the seven churches in Revelation, I don't think we have any diminished view from Jesus in that respect. He's very clear about his comments concerning the church and what goes on there. See? So this is incredibly serious and shocking, really, if you haven't uh, thought about it. And verse 3 follows up that incredibly sobering statement. It says this in verse 3, be on your guard if your brother sins, what? What are you supposed to do? What's it say? Rebuke him. Who's supposed to do that? Church is supposed to do that. Right? I, I think we understand this. Th this, is, this is responsibility for the church. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5, you should have reproved him and kicked him out. Instead, you rejoiced and you say, oh, we're so cosmopolitan and so open-minded. And, you know, they really, he really needed to be in the church, so we kept him in. What's the Lord's concern? The Lord's concern is about the purity of the church, not about the individual. I mean, he loves the individual. He certainly has been, uh, has, his sins have been paid for like anyone else. But he's chosen or she's chosen to live in open sinfulness, and so something has to be done about that. 
be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So the church is supposed to be taking care, as we saw earlier, these kinds of things. And this is very early in the church, building blocks, if you will, of the church. And then just in case you think you're supposed to be chasing down all the offenses, look at verse 4. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, what are you supposed to do? That creates a great environment in the church, doesn't it? And beloved, in case you think that's unusual, the church has only been meeting for a couple of months. And Ananias and Sapphira give an offering, which is their own free will offering. They were required to give no certain amount. They sold a piece of property, and they came into the church, and Ananias came in first and said, we gave a certain amount, which was a lie. And the Lord revealed that to Peter, and he said, are you sure that's what you gave? And he said, yes. And he dropped down what? And then Sapphira comes in, and what happens? Did you sell the property for X number of dollars? Is that what you got? Yes, and she dropped down dead, and they carried her out. What was the problem there? Was the problem that they had to give a certain amount? No. Whatever they wanted to give was under their own command. They could have given whatever they wanted. What was the problem? That they came in and they lied openly about it, except it was, they thought it was a secret and nobody would find out, except the Lord revealed it to the leaders of the church, and they fell down dead. What do you think happened to the church at that point? Did they all disband? I'm out of here. I'm not staying. What happens when discipline comes in the church? Did the church grow? If we understand Acts very well, it grew exponentially. Well, why did it grow? It grew because the Lord wasn't content early in the church to allow sinfulness to become the pattern. And so this is a, this, these are shocking things to think about. But as the Apostle Paul, if you understand the foundation of the church, it becomes a little easier for you to understand that this is the pattern the church has to have. But you can also see how grievous this is for those who lead the ministry. When you have to do something like this, this encroaches on every part of your life, as it should, because it's a grievous thing to the Lord. It's like a death. And so these are parts and parcel of how the church is supposed to work. Seem to be the concern today. You don't hear a lot of talk about the holiness of the church and the purity of the church. Uh, even the idea of confessing your sins to one another, that you be healed and and your sins to the Lord is really outdated in an age of moral relativism and moral ambiguity and this is my favorite personal truth modern answer and this is just so sad is let's get down to house churches where we have less authority less confrontation less accountability more autonomy more independence. That really is the root of that movement. The main problem with the modern approach is that the church lost its interest in holiness and it lost its interest in maintaining purity. Churches have become content with to be fellowships of independent members with minimal accountability to God and even less to each other. That describes the modern church in general. Autonomous, independent, don't poke around in my, my business. I don't want you to know anything about me. See, that is not the church, okay? That's the modern redefinition of foolishness in the church. And, and Paul instructs the church in 1 Corinthians 5.3 concerning unrepentant immorality. We saw just a minute ago, for I am my part, he says, 
though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. He heard the report. He understood what was going on in the church. He understood the open, unrepentant sin. He understood the church had not done what they were supposed to do about it and that they had rejoiced instead that that person was there and thought how how open-minded they were. In the name of our Lord Jesus, he says, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, whose power? Not the power of men, right? Jesus is behind this, isn't it? He's the one who said the Luke passage. He's the one who said the Matthew 18 passage. So Jesus is in favor of the church being pure. He says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. If he's a believer, he's asking for discipline from the Lord on the individual in, in relation to his health that he'll repent and come back to where he needs to be. That's the idea. So the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. If he doesn't ever come to repentance, if he never comes to the point where he recognizes his sin was wrong, then what was the original problem with the individual? They were never born again to begin with. And so he will find himself cast away. Your boasting, verse 6, is not good, he says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Did you mark that? What was the main concern? See, people will say, well, he really, she really needs to be in the church right now. I would say this. Yes, they need to walk in holiness. Yes, they need the word of God. Yes, they do need to walk in spiritual compliance with what the Lord says. But what does the church need? That's the main thing. So that's the oversight the Lord gives to the church. The church needs purity. And if somebody refuses to walk in purity, then they can't walk in the church. See? And that's the whole point of Matthew 18. Jesus says to the church, again, he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more of you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. What's that mean? You're going to the individual and just saying, we, we have all experienced this. This is where you are, and you need to repent. First person goes privately and says, you need to repent. This is a sinful issue. They get the explanation. If it's obviously a sin issue, then they need to repent, and that's the that's that is the message. The two or three who come who've also experienced it, have seen it in action, they say the same thing. You need to repent. What if they don't listen to two or three witnesses? Verse 17, if he refuses to even to listen to them, tell it to the church. Why? So the church, in their holiness and faithfulness and humility and, and coming with weakness, can come to the person and say, what's the word? Repent. Rep what you're doing is wrong. Don't continue here. Turn from your actions. This is going to lead to your destruction. It leads to the, to the bad testimony in the church, a bad testimony for you. Don't do this. The Lord gave you his, his laws, and therefore you're good. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So put out from the church, considered not born again. Why? Because all of their actions point to they do not have a relationship with the Lord. A continued resistance to, to spiritual counsel from one and multiple people who've experienced it and the church itself, uh, a refusal to listen to them shows that you were never probably born again to begin with. So you're treated like an evangelism prospect. You start from the start. You need to come to faith in the Lord because you're obviously, you walked in some certain way, but you had a, you had a, a pattern of God, but no power. There's no transformation that occurred. You lived in the world and continue to do so. So the obvious absence of church discipline is just a symptom, I think, of, of the moral decline, the spiritual indifference 
of the church. It's just a symptom of a shallow commitment to teach and do the scripture, really, when it comes right down to that, because the scripture's not unclear in any of these areas. It couldn't be more clear, as a matter of fact. It's a lack of reverence for what Jesus had to say to the church, obviously, particularly to the seven example churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Repent, repent, repent. If you don't, I'll come and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent, Revelation 2, 5. I'm, if you repent, 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 I'm coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them with a sword of my mouth, Revelation 2, 16. Repent, 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 because I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Repent, repent, repent. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, then treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. You see, there's always repent, 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 come back, come back, come back. But if you don't, the church purity is the most important thing. And so you can't continue in that fellowship. And all of that balanced out with Revelation 3.19 and, and, and Galatians 6.1. You know, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You want to be loving? You want to be compassionate? Then reprove and discipline. That's the same words we have about children, right? If you love your son, you'll discipline him, him promptly, right? The one who doesn't discipline his son hates his son. There's exactly the same kinds of understanding. You want to be, be compassionate, you want to be loving, then do the loving thing. See, reprove and discipline. Come alongside them, Galatians says, and, and bring them back. Instead of that, many churches just say by default, Jesus, I know you're concerned about the holiness of the church, but we're really not. That's all we can be really saying, right? We're concerned about um, other things besides that. Mark this, well, the church discipline this is it, is not an option you can choose or discard. Do you get that? And I think we can understand that pretty clearly. Church discipline is not an option you can choose or discard. If you discard it, you're unfaithful as a minister. If you discard it as a member, you're not coming alongside and helping people to walk in holiness, then you're not being a faithful part of the flock. It's a necessity. It's an integral mark of true Christianity and life in the church. It's all part and parcel of all of that. And without it, the church becomes worldly. See? Remember we looked at the two lists from chapter 12, verse 20 and 21? Strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, impurity, immorality, sensuality. Those are precisely, we saw, the things which the wrath of God is falling on unbelievers. In fact, we saw two verses that say that list and say, that's how you were, don't be that way anymore, for this is the reason why the wrath of God is falling on unbelievers, for these things. So when these things are in the church, what is the church? It's worldly. It's acting like the world. Any of those parts of that list, are they a common part of your life, then you're acting just like the world acts, and that's not what the Lord wants in the church. And he says one word, repent. That's what Colossians 3, 6, those are re the reasons why. In fact, it mixes that list up. It doesn't even have it in order. We think that's somehow a uh, descending order, right? These are the least uh, sins, and these are the most as you get down to the other one. It just mixes the whole thing up. It says, for this reason, the wrath of God is falling on unbelievers. It doesn't prioritize them. They all create harm in the church, destroy the church, and remove its power. Those things unchecked, unrepented of in the church makes the church worldly, and the worldliness of the church is the reason for its impotence. Nowhere are you going to see, as most books would say, and most church growth experts would say, that the, if you do some certain thing, the church will explode in numbers. You don't see anything like that at all in the scriptures, anywhere. No pattern like that. What you do see over and over again is a call to the church to be pure. 
and you get to the church of Philadelphia, do you remember what it said? I've opened a door. You're a little church, but you have a lot of power. I've opened a door. No man can shut for you. Does he care if you have huge numbers? No. Does he care about if you're pure? Absolutely. If it's the church, purity is the thing. See? And again, it, it's, it's not sinless perfection. As Ephesians 5.8 tell us clearly, it, for you were formerly in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. So in other words, don't walk in the deeds of the unredeemed. But what? Walk as children of the light. Walk as children of the light. That's, that's very grace-oriented, isn't it? Walk as children of the light. Are you in the light? Walk that way. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. It's not sinless perfection, but what? Verse 10. Trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. That's, that's what we want at Berea. We're all just trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we understand what it says and, and we apply it to our lives. We want to learn what's pleasing to the Lord, and then we want to walk that way. That's us, right? I mean, that's what we want in your own mind as you think about your relationship to Christ. Isn't that what you want? Trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord, walking as children of light. If you want to define your Christianity, I'm going to walk as a child of light because I am in the light. Body of believers trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. Paul wants the church to take a test. And he wants them to pass the test. But in order for them to pass the test, they need to know what they need to know. And later in this passage, we're going to see what that leads to in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Listen to this. Listen to the wording. Let's see if I can go there. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. This is such a great uh, imagery. We've talked about this before as we talked about the family and certainly on Father's Day. But Love your wives, but here's the example. Here's the hurdle you're going to get over. Uh, not better than the guy who's next to you. Not better than somebody else in the church. Just as Christ loved the church, how did Jesus love the church? He gave himself up for her. Okay, so that, that's a great mark for you. If you want to love your wife, don't just, you know, it's not sentiment. It's not roses, although you should give her both. If you want to love her, love her like Christ loved the church. How did he love her? Well, he paid her sin debt. He paid your sin debt. He paid our sin debt. Why? So that he might sanctify her. Speaking to the church now, but also speaking to you husbands. We get to be here because Jesus settled our sin debt and he set the church apart from the world. How? Mark it. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How does the church come into purity? How does it come into the position it's supposed to be in, that it can be used by the Lord in a mighty way. How does your wife get to the point where she can flourish in her ministry and in her child-rearing and in her wherever the Lord has taken her? You love her like Christ loved the church. You wash her with your words, just like Christ washes the church with his words. What he cleanses us from? The world's deeds, the world's thoughts, the world's motivations, the world's lusts, the world's forms of communication, the world's gossip and slander, etc. Right? That's what you cleanse your wife from. You don't bring that to the marriage. You make sure that's not in it. And you make sure that's not part of your language, just like Christ makes sure it's not part of ours. See? And he uses the word of God to do that. What did he cleanse us with? With the word of God, with biblical teaching, always. Verse 27, that he might present to himself... The church in all her glory. That's what it leads to. Having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be what? Holy and blameless. Your job as a husband, of course, wash your wife in that way, not bringing corruption into the marriage, but bringing 
uh, faithfulness and purity and holiness and just like the church to those things through his word to a point where the church is holy and blameless and Paul knew that the problem in Corinth was not going to be whether or not they were culturally relevant or not they connected with the temples and they connected with the culture around them. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what Paul wanted the church to be. Uh, false teachers criticized Paul for not having a relevant message. Remember, we looked at that. They criticized him for not taking into account the expectations of the Corinthians and what they wanted and what type of powerful oratory they were used to because he couldn't speak very well. But Paul was really falling short here. He didn't give them what they wanted. They criticized Paul because he wasn't hip and he wasn't cool. In fact, his persona was unimpressive. No, no skinny jeans, no, no boots, no, no cool glasses, no cool, you know, facial hair and, and, and whatever. See, Paul was really plain, really didn't capture anybody's, anybody's uh, attention. He didn't have the power to grab an audience. And it wasn't that he was discovering that he didn't have that stuff. He already addressed that stuff when he first came to the church. And he said in chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Boy, that's not a way to impress your congregation, right? Um, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I don't want you to think about me at all, Paul says. I want you to think about the wisdom and the power of God, and I came already with that intent. I wasn't just discovering that I'm not impressive when you told me I wasn't impressive. I'm not just discovering that I'm not a good speaker when you tell me you don't have a very good oratory uh, uh, pattern. So he wasn't interested in being culturally relevant himself, and he wasn't interested in the church being culturally relevant. Paul knew the problem in Corinth. It wasn't the lack of pragmatic approach to church growth, see? In other words, if you do enough different things, you'll eventually get it, and once you organize a certain way, you'll have this explosive growth. You're not going to find that anywhere in the New Testament, nowhere, except that dominates most speeches and most books concerning church growth. It has nothing to do with what we talked about a few weeks ago about your, your congregation is never going to rise any higher than where you are spiritually. It's about your own personal character and what you bring to the pulpit in, in your relationship with the Lord is what's going to give you the opportunity to minister to individuals. You don't see any of that either. It has nothing to do with this pragmatic, you know, organized a certain way. Now you're perfectly set up to grow this exponential growth. Mark this. Paul, Paul knew that Jesus wants to present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And, and he wanted to show the, uh, the church to show forth fruit of repentance, which is holiness. And he believed the word of God. Why? Because it produces a church that having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It produces uh, cleansing and washing. These are all things we need, right? So we, we focus on the Word of God. We read through it. What does it, mean, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to us? Why? Because that's washing all of us. It's washing me in my office when I'm reading it. It's washing you when we read it to you. And as you study it later, it's continuing to do washing and cleaning, and, and it's ironing out all the wrinkles and taking away all those things and presenting us holy and blameless, a bride to the, to the bridegroom. And so Paul believed the word of God was the power. He never said he was. He never said he wanted to impress them with anything. And behind that came this conviction and commitment to the fact that the church had to be holy. So he says to the church in Corinth, just like, he, just like Jesus says to the seven churches, just like he said to the early church in, in uh, Matthew 18 and Luke 17. 
I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed with a testimony of two or three witnesses. I previously said when I'm present in the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who've sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I'll not spare anyone, since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. If Paul needed to do it, he was going to do it in humiliation, he was going to do it in sorrow, but he was going to do it in the power of Jesus himself, who is over all things the church. And we'll look a little bit more at this process next time, Lord willing. I'd like to bow in prayer, if you would, as we really commit our, our week to the Lord, as we understand these things. We uh, pray the Lord will work that out in our own heart. Lord, we thank you today for a time to be together. We thank you for our worship, for our time of, of prayer, for our time of giving, and for the time in the word. And Lord, I pray that you will help these words as they, they find a place in our heart to change our thoughts. We might orient our thoughts around a biblical understanding of these kinds of things. We might recognize our own part to play in the church body, a desire for the church to be holy and pure, not sinlessly perfect. None of us are that way, but learning what's pleasing to the Lord, keeping a short sin list, not walking in a pattern of, of disobedience. So at, at whatever point we intersect with those types of, of instruction, Lord, I pray that we'll be conformed. We wish to be a church like some of those that we see who have power and a door that's opened because we walk in such a way that you can use us. We don't need some fantastic organization. We don't need you know, great orators. You don't need some flashy thing. You just need to be holy, walk in do the things we're supposed to do. And then we'll be doing these things that are pleasing to you. It's really just that simple. And we thank you for that. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said.